The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. So at some level, a belief in democracy was necessary, you know, in Benin as in elsewhere, right? Support for it, absolutely. But what's interesting in the Benin case is that you were lacking that level of political elite leadership that were committed democratic ideologues. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for listening to the Democracy Paradox, a podcast on democracy, democratization, and world affairs. Each week, we talk about big-picture insights to better understand political issues and events. These are often complex ideas that might even be unfamiliar, so I always provide a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com. Now, today's guest is Rachel Beatty Riedel, a professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University. She also co-hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Ufahamu Africa with Kimi Dion. For four straight weeks now, we have explored democracy in hard places. I have based these episodes on a new book edited by Scott Manwaring and Tariq Masood. Rachel is among the contributors. Her chapter is Africa's Democratic Outliers, Success Amid Challenges in Benin and South Africa. Now, my conversation with Rachel really opened my eyes to the importance of Benin. The past episodes focused on some well-known countries like India, South Africa, and Indonesia. Meanwhile, Benin flies under the radar, but it's important because it was a democratic trailblazer in Africa. Moreover, its democracy relies more on consensus and inclusion than the typical Western model of democratic governance. Indeed, I believe it offers important lessons for students of democracy. In fact, if you like my conversation with Rachel Beatty Riedel, I have a few more questions for her available for supporters on the podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just look up Democracy Paradox at patreon.com. Like always, feel free to email questions or comments to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. Here is my conversation with Rachel Beatty Riedel. Rachel Beatty Riedel, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Rachel, I'm fascinated with this case of Benin, partly just because I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't realize how important it was for democracy in Africa until I started to look into its history. And I still haven't gotten that far, to be honest with you. I do now know that it was the first country to democratize in Africa after the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's a very well-known country for many democracy scholars. Like The more I looked into it, the more I saw people like Larry Diamond and others 
just name dropping Benin as one of its many examples that they'll bring up. But a lot of us don't really know the story of its democratization. Can you briefly tell us the story? Tell us that story of democratization in Benin. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Benin is one of these quintessential and truly exciting cases of democracy in hard places because prior to democratization, it had many different types of government, either instability that would make democracy hard because it had tripartite ethno-regional divisions that caused a great deal of instability after independence. So six military coups in a fairly rapid succession after independence. And then Matthew Caracou's military takeover in 1972 ushered in a kind of two decades of authoritarian stability, a nominally Marxist-Leninist single party, and an effort to kind of replace these regional affiliations and traditional leaders and install a national affiliation to the party, to the state, and to the Karakou regime. So you have both ethno-regional instability, you have a military dictatorship with what looked like a fairly durable single authoritarian party. How do you get to democracy from there? And so that's why Benin is such an interesting and fascinating and important case for us, because from this kind of difficult background, citizens really began mobilizing in the late 1980s around a number of different concerns. First of all, the economic stagnation and eventually a kind of economic crisis. So you had huge protests by labor unions, from medical workers to teachers, etc. And then, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union, it also was a case that was really impacted by a changing set of international priorities, right? So the geopolitical game changed, particularly because Benin was this Marxist-Leninist single party that had support from the Soviet Union. And so with the end and the demise of the Soviet Union, all of a sudden, you know, the Karakou regime was much more isolated and no longer kind of this frozen Cold War satellite state. So both with international pressures for now kind of democratic political liberalization and economic liberalization, these shocks built upon the kind of domestic mobilization that was claiming the need for a new type of representative government that would meet their economic, social, and political needs. So from that real domestic turn, and really beginning in earnest in 1989, the country came together in this national conference and reconstituted what would be the nature of the new regime going forward. And in some ways, Benin reminds me of the importance of Rustow's reference to a hot family feud in terms of a sequence of democratization, that you need the old elite to have this kind of internal argument, the defections from the old elite, enough crumbling of the kind of prior regime that leads to new types of bargains, a new window of opportunity for democratic bargains to be struck. And that's exactly what happened here in Benin. So with the National Conference in 1990, it included leaders from a kind of political opposition, unions, university workers, religious associations, the military, human rights organizations, the Lawyers Association, as I mentioned, was very important. Women's group. It was really participatory, bringing people together. And President Karakou at the time, right, had control over the military, the single party, the bureaucracy of the state. 
he had everything. And yet that crumbled because it was no longer sustainable in the face of this resistance. And so the conference peacefully drafted a new democratic constitution that was premised on the need for full representation of all the different parts of the country, ethnic, religious, class, etc. And the conference itself asserted sovereignty over the country. So it maintained President Karakou as a figurehead head of state, but it declared itself sovereign and said, from here on out, this conference makes the decisions. We're going to establish the new entity. And so it organized competitive multi-party national elections for the following year, which ushered in a new president. And so this moment is so important because it offers a pathway to real participatory, fully representative democracy. And it's a case in which the incumbent learned to lose. So Karakou accepted his loss. The military accepted their displacement. And yet that old political ancien regime reconstituted in new ways and had a place in the new dispensation going forward. They weren't out external. They weren't spoilers. They made their way to have a role in the new system. It reminds me a lot of the democratization in Indonesia, where the regime kind of fell apart, but the old elites still found a place within the new regime. Am I reading that right? Does this example parallel what happened in Indonesia in different ways? Well, the interesting thing, I think, is, you know, in Benin, you don't have an authoritarian successor party that is maintained. And that's an important difference in Benin from a lot of other cases. So the Marxist-Leninist party, the PRPB, we'll say, it goes away. And so it's no longer a player. It's no longer an entity that helps to organize. And I think that this is what, you know, I've argued is really important for the way in which the new party system and the new mode of organizing democratic competition kind of flourishes going forward because you don't have that well-organized, constituted entity that a kind of pro-democracy opposition is responding to. And so while the individuals of the military elite and former high-ranking political officials in the ancien regime party are still players, they do so because they join so many and they create so many different parties. So it's completely fragmented. It's really decentralized. It's very fluid. People run as independent candidates. People form a kind of very localized party so that they maybe they can get elected to the National Assembly in their particular constituency, but they don't have a kind of organizing unit that keeps them together. And what this allows is what I refer to in some ways as this kind of consensus democracy, because it allows all of those different entities to bandwagon together. So whether, for example, Nisafor Soglo won in those first founding elections following the National Conference in 1991, and then Matthew Karakou comes back on the scene and wins the next presidential elections, those elites can reconstitute and kind of bandwagon support around Soglo. They can be in bandwagon support around Karakou. They're flexible for the next round. And in some ways, it allows that incumbent to lose when it's time, because there's not a whole entourage, a whole party that's dependent on them winning. They can still bandwagon around the next candidate. So that fluidity, I think, is actually quite important to the kind of bargaining consensus inclusive model 
that the Beninese transition and maintenance of democracy relies on. So what does consensus rule really mean? Does it mean that there is no real opposition, that they come to agreements and most things pass with overwhelming majorities? Does it mean that people are brought to the table on a regular basis? Does it mean that the cabinet has representation from every one of the major political parties? How does it actually operate in practice? That's a great question. So thus far, no president in Benin has actually won with a political party affiliation. All elected presidents have been elected as independent candidates. And that allows them this ability to assure bandwagoning potential. Nothing is already taken up by their party affiliates and loyalists. So after a presidential election, the National Assembly, which can be made up of 30 different political parties, can reconstitute around a kind of coalition of parties that support the executive. And there are still some parties, some kind of opposition coalitions that might choose not to bandwagon because they want to maintain for the next election a kind of role as an opposition. But what's striking about the Beninese case is that because it's so easy to form political parties or to run as an independent candidate, those are the kinds of rules that allow for this coalition potential. The fact that the National Assembly times its election of the speaker for after the presidential election so that they can shift and they can bandwagon appropriately and signal whose side they're on and be part of this consensus. And also that the National Assembly is able to pass legislation in this very consensual manner that allows protections to really require full agreement of all of the representatives before constitutional changes could be made. So in some ways, those are some protections that would allow and give a kind of security that protect against exclusionary politics that say, well, your voice doesn't count. Your representation of this group or this way of thinking doesn't count, and we're just going to override you. That has been really avoided in Benin to make sure that people feel that they have this participatory stake around the table. You actually mentioned a case in the book where the court struck down a law because the opposition parties didn't support it at the time, which is remarkable because when we think about democracy in the United States and Europe, I mean, there's kind of an assumption that it's, at least in the legislature, that there should be some semblance of majority rule, that if the majority wants this, the minority lost out. I mean, they lost the election. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays out and maybe this particular case? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is really an important case because it allows us to see the way in which the judicial system is one more check in this kind of consensual rule process. So high stakes legislation that would be around the constitution, questions around executive prerogatives, concentration of power in the executive. The court saw itself as a protector of this model of consensus rule. And so Passing something by a majority isn't sufficient to really continue to ensure that full sense of participation and representation. 
that all the voices in the country would be listened to. And so I think it's not the model that we would think of. You're right. In terms of majority, you get your bare majority, you have the power to pass the legislation that you think should happen. And so this, in a way, is a system that has been developed that we could say protects minority rights, except it's not necessarily a minority that's static. It's a minority rule that is uh, a protection of minority rights, opinions, needs that is fluid depending on the kind of constitution of that coalition around the presidential bandwagon. So you keep using this word fluid, and it's easy to imagine a case where the old elites just continue to change political parties that they're in, continue to change coalitions. But I would hope that there's opportunities for that fluidity to allow for new people to be able to come into the political system, new voices to be able to be heard. How does the Benin system, or how has it, at least in the past, allowed new voices to be part of this consensus model of governance? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it absolutely does allow for new candidates to enter. And in fact, we've seen new candidates rise to the fore in each presidential election that weren't necessarily candidates in the prior election, which is quite striking and quite different from what we see in a lot of neighboring countries, for example, where you have maybe more stable parties, you have a sense of the enduring opposition candidate that might run again and again, or the vice president or succession that's handled within the party. So you know who the major players are. In Benin, it's quite different, where different political, economic elites might come in as, again, an independent candidate and really rise to the fore quite quickly. And this certainly happens at lower levels of government where not as many resources are necessary. So from municipal elections to national assembly at the constituency level, you can have new candidates form a party or previously run as an independent candidate and be successful in that round. So I think that what's important about it is that it shows that there aren't these kind of high barriers to entry and that you don't have to necessarily pay your allegiances to a particular party or group of political elites. And that if you are demonstrating that you can bring services to your community, that you are the right representative for them, that you can take part in this democratic experiment. And that's what I think has been so exciting about the Beninese case. And the presidents that succeeded after Matthew Karaku, first Nusifor Soglo, the first president who won following the national conference and in that founding multi-party democratic election, Nisafor Soglo was not a kind of part of the established political elite. He had been working for the World Bank in Washington. You know, he had been an expat. He came back to the country in this moment of major neoliberal reform and was seen as a kind of outsider. He was able to win. Then Matthew Karaku, the former authoritarian incumbent, came back and won two elections. But then following his term, we had Boni Yayi, who was again a kind of businessman, not necessarily seen as a political insider. And then Patrice Talon, who was absolutely an economic magnet, the king of cotton, had port control and licensing. So none of those were seen as standard political figures. And so they were able to bring something new to the country. I like how in the book you describe it as low barriers to entry. 
In fact, there's a passage where you write, in Benin, consensus rule meant low barriers to entry for political parties and candidates so that the former ruling party members could reconstitute in new ways. But I also imagine that it gives opportunities for people who are involved in civil society, who are involved in business, who are expats, like you just described, to be able to come into the system and be able to win election easily and be able to have a seat at the table. And I think that that has an enormous impact on how you think about democracy and how that democracy operates. That's exactly right. And because of those low barriers to entry, it empowers a certain sector of society who is willing to mobilize and may not have the material resources that we would expect as being incredibly important in really well-organized party systems or, you know, a place where the established elites have high barriers to entry. But in Benin, because of these low barriers to entry, the women's group and market women in particular, their ability to mobilize, go out to the street, demonstrate support for a particular idea or a particular candidate in pro-democracy moments has been particularly significant. And so, for example, in these cases where incumbent presidents weren't quite sure they were ready to leave after two terms, the question of third term succession has really loomed large in sustaining Benin's democracy again and again, from Matthew Karakou was said to have been unsure whether he was ready to leave. And certainly, Yayi Boni was thinking about changing the constitution, had suggested some constitutional amendments that might offer a loophole and restart his term count. We'll see about Patrice Tamon. But in these moments, market women mobilization around don't change my constitution or no third term has been incredibly significant. And because different civil society groups can come to the fore and be so visible, could put forward their own candidate or support a new candidate in the face of what might be seen as a kind of potentially autocratizing incumbent. The society has, in some ways, I like to think, more power to claim their democratic rights and hold governments and particularly incumbent elites accountable. So how does the public perceive this consensus model? Do they feel that they really do have a seat at the table, or do they feel that the consensus model is really just consensus among different political elites that have a lot of power within the country? Yeah, the consensus model empowers a set of political elites, as you've said, and citizens are connected to those elites through their member of parliament through their national assembly representative. And so their sense of being represented is really through that line of communication. So then politicians are judged on whether or not they are bringing home the services and the slice of the pie that the constituency feels they're entitled to. And so in this way, people are represented through a kind of elected broker model in the sense that their representatives should serve their constituency and they're judged on the extent to which they are successful. And this feeds into the kind of bandwagoning incentives that members of the National Assembly have because it's a lot easier to get some services to your constituency when you're a part of the ruling coalition. And so if you bandwagon around the new president, 
and are part of the governing majority, then ideally you're going to be able to have a ministerial appointment or be in support of those who are in the Ministry of Education or the Department of Transportation and the like, and extend electricity, roads, new schools, new clinics, what have you. The work that government is supposed to do for its people that these are the ways in which the consensus model is supposed to work for the citizens of Benin. Now, you included Benin as one of two examples of a democracy in hard places in Africa specifically in this new book. And there are other African democracies that you left out, like Ghana, Botswana. There's plenty others that we could have probably included. How is Benin different from these other African democracies that really make it a hard place for democracy to succeed. Yeah. So in this book, I lay out the way in which Benin and my other case that I include here, which has a lot of parallels with your guest, Evan Lieberman, and the new book that he has just put out on South Africa. So the way in which Benin is different from Ghana and Botswana, for example, is because Benin's transition to democracy is a complete rupture from the past. It doesn't include this authoritarian successor party. It doesn't include the party organization that organized the authoritarian regime during the prior decades. And so with this complete disruption, you have the sense of politics being reorganized, diffuse, participatory, fluid, to bring up the word again that you referenced. And so the model had to be built from scratch. And there are many reasons why that makes it particularly difficult. Because fluidity is seen to be a challenge in and of itself. Well-institutionalized, organized political parties that are deeply rooted in society should be a channel through which democracy can be more stable and rooted and routinized and the way in which democracy is practiced. And so you're lacking that in Benin. And that's what makes it even more challenging in some ways that we would expect. The flip side of that is that it offers some new opportunities for new people to be involved and to do away with some of the authoritarian legacies of the prior successor party and their embedded hold on power. So while you have this extra challenge of reorganizing the political space, bringing in new political elites who don't necessarily have the training, the skills, the experience in government, that also means that new people from the bottom up, from the outside, et cetera, have this potential to have a voice. And that's what I think distinguishes it in particular. We look at the case of Ghana, where Jerry Rawlings and the NDC were incredibly important in crafting the transition to democracy, set the rules that they wanted to compete by, won the founding multi-party elections. And then eventually they did learn to lose, but they never lost completely. They never destructed as a party. They still held you know, seats in the National Assembly. They still had seats, a lot of seats at the district assembly level and municipal government level, and, and then were able to win future rounds. So that's a very different case from Benin. And certainly in Botswana, you've had this dominant party since independence and its ability to really control the political space and maintain the majority over time. And therefore, 
you have much less fluidity. You've had ability to have democratic elections, but it's just such a different landscape from what we see as the level of participation and reconstitution. This really kind of open vista for reconstituting a new democracy that was able to happen in Benin. So last week I talked to Ashutosh Varshney and one of the big takeaways about India's democratization process and the years following its democratization, where it's just very new, was how important leadership was for India's democracy to succeed. I mean, he put a lot of emphasis on Nehru. We also talked about B.R. and Bedkar. And India's just got these giants that completely believed in democracy. Benin is different. You write in the book, in Benin, many of the key players were not committed democratic ideologues, given the representation allotted to the former ruling party and military elites. They were often self-interested and embattled elites, staring down the precipice and opting for institutional compromise given the infeasibility of maintaining the status quo. It's remarkable because the country did maintain democracy for so many years, despite not having that leader that completely believed, bought in, and led the people and said, this is how we're going to govern from here on out. Does a democracy really need those committed Democrats for its consolidation to occur? Benin is such an important case here because in some ways, I stress the democratic desire among the population, among the masses that they fought for and were represented in crafting a new democracy based on their ideas of what it could be, this fully open representative system. So at some level, a belief in democracy was necessary, you know, in Benin as in elsewhere, right? Support for it, absolutely. But what's interesting in the Benin case is that you were lacking that level of political elite leadership that were committed democratic ideologues. And that's something that I think I bring to this volume is that I'm really looking at a case where that was lacking. You had to figure out what to do with this authoritarian incumbent president, Matthew Karakou, who came to power as a military general through a coup and put in a Marxist-Leninist party. You had to figure out what to do with him. And so they let him be this figurehead and stay on and compete in the elections. But he didn't win in the first round. The candidate who won the first elections, Nisa Forsoglo, definitely campaigned as a Democrat. But the way in which you got to this compromise situation of democracy, that political elites, the military, and these kind of former members of the party could get behind was that they were never excluded. It wasn't a zero-sum you're going to be held accountable for kind of past atrocities. You're going to be barred from future competition. You're going to be excluded from economic opportunities. No, both in Benin and in South Africa, the ways in which the ancien regime was very carefully included in the new democratic bargain. So in Benin, these kind of former political elites in the military in South Africa, the former apartheid leaders were not cut out. They were included in a new vision of the nation that could represent all. And I think that that's so important because it was never then zero sum. It was a way of allowing democracy as a bargain that could advance people's interests when the old system was clearly no longer sustainable, when it was clear that the old system was not going to suffice. They couldn't maintain it any longer. Only then 
were they willing to opt for this new democratic bargain? That's because they weren't ideologically committed to it, but they saw it as a path forward. And so then people, you know, were willing to give it that space. And I think it's especially striking in Benin, the way in which Matthew Karaku is reelected. You know, Soglo himself was still running. He had another term and he was defeated and the population voted back the former military slash leftist party authoritarian leader. And they called him the chameleon because he was born again. He was a nouveau democratic supporter who was willing to put himself into this new dispensation. And once again, try to become the leader, the president, and have executive control under these new bounded rules. And I think that that is really the epitome of someone who you could say was not a committed Democrat. (laughs) Maybe they came to believe, but maybe they just wanted to compete and win. And he did, but he also lost and he accepted that loss. It always amazes me when countries elect former dictators back to office and It amazes me even more when those former dictators actually continue to govern democratically, that they don't just reimpose the authoritarian regime, they accept the rules of the game and go forward. But at the same time, Benin is a country that's experienced some recent democratic backsliding, and you write about it in this chapter, and a lot of people have written about it, to be honest with you. And a lot of it originates from the current president, Patrice Talon. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about him and how he came to win the presidency? Yes, this is the the story of Benin right now that is really concerning. You know, it's one of the biggest drops in any measure of democracy over the last few years, whether Freedom House or Polity or VDEM, you know, every measure um, and just basic observation demonstrates that democracy is really at risk right now in Benin and democratic freedoms have been significantly curtailed and democratic competition has been significantly curtailed by Patrice Talon as the current president. What's interesting about Patrice Talon and his rise to power is that he is perhaps the most powerful economic elite in Benin. And the king of cotton, so he controls the cotton industry, which has significant impact on all of the farmers, particularly the farmers in northern Benin who produce cotton. So he has this really direct link to the population in terms of his economic position in the number one export industry in Benin, and also in terms of his licensing and control over the port in Benin, which is an important aspect of the economy because it connects to imports into Nigeria. So Patrice Talon has this incredible economic concentration of power. And during the period of the preceding president, Yaiboni, there was a feud. There was a very significant feud between Talon and Yaiboni. And there are some who say that it's because Talon's control over the port and his license was put at risk by the former president. And so then there was an accusation that Patrice Talon tried to poison Yaiboni and Patrice Talon had to flee the country and was living abroad in exile until some international mediation occurred and Patrice Talon was able to come back to Benin and then ran for president. So the story in some ways about Patrice Talon, which is really interesting, is that he was the economic elite 
who funded the prior candidates, many different candidates, again, because of this fluid party system, not one single party that represented him, but many political candidates, many former opposition leaders and the like. And that was so that he could have the kind of political influence that he needed. This is a a global story, economic elites funding political candidates, so they have the political influence that they need. But when that economic dominance was put into question and he had to flee the country, it seems as though he thought, well, the best way for me to make sure I get the political landscape that I need as this you know, economic king is to also be the president. That's just my you know, psychological analysis. But certainly his economic well-being was put into jeopardy. And then he came back to capture the political sphere. So once he became president, he quickly began to rule in a way that started to centralize executive power, claim more executive privilege, limit the roles of other bodies, have more influence and loyalists within the judiciary, and use the legislature as the route to making legislation that would make it more difficult for civil society to operate, for a free press to operate, and for opposition, political party and candidates to operate. And this is really devastating because it breaks the consensus model. It breaks the participatory nature of the inclusive bargain that Benin constructed in the National Conference and has maintained ever since. And in some ways, Patrice Tellon has been the only one able to do it because of the degree of economic concentration and then coupled with his role as executive It's just too much concentration of power. And so Benin is in a really difficult place because the civil society mobilization that has been key to its maintenance in these prior moments of contestation over incumbents trying to centralize and maybe change the rules to be able to maintain their rule has been countered by a really robust democratic mobilization from the very start, this kind of mass support for democracy and willing to mobilize for it. And because there are so many barriers that Tamil is putting in place, that is becoming very dangerous for people to do. So it's a very concerning moment. I'm hopeful that the next elections will, again, bring around what Benin is known for and that incumbents learn to lose, to quote Joe Wong. But it's a moment of extreme concentration that Benin has not seen before. So sometimes when we think about leaders concentrating power can seem very abstract. It's difficult to pinpoint what exactly they did. And there's two different articles that I found that really brought home the impact on democracy that some of those reforms did. And I liked when you mentioned about adding barriers, because I think that's really the theme, is that he took low barriers to entry and increased them so that it really kind of undermined the basic constitutional principle of Benin's democracy. So The Economist wrote, with only two parties on the ballot, both of them supporters of President Patrice Talon, Benin's general election on April 28th was an unhappy throwback to the country's post-independence Marxist era when voters had no real choice at all. And then there's a second article. It's from the New York Times, and they write, some races had no candidates at all, allowing Mr. Talon to appoint loyalists. And that, to me, really kind of drives home the point. I mean, it was a low barrier to entry. It was easy to get into races, easy to run. And even though you might not win, it was easier to be able to go 
from just being somebody who wanted a seat at the table to having a seat at the table to becoming something that President alone was able to manipulate the elections and create very much a competitive authoritarian system, if not something even more extreme than that. Exactly. So President Talon has dramatically changed these low barriers to entry for political parties and for candidates and has made them extremely high barriers to entry, which has effectively disqualified the opposition. So what we see now is largely a single party state or a kind of not a a coherent one party, but a completely pro-Talon set of political elites in the National Assembly because of a number of changes to electoral laws that, again, it's about the rules that determine who is allowed to run and under what circumstances. So for example, prior to the presidential elections, the electoral rules were changed that said presidential candidates had to have nomination from a certain number, a certain percentage of either mayors or national assembly candidates. So you could only run for president if you had nomination from current mayors or National Assembly representatives. But those National Assembly elections had already disqualified the opposition parties. So therefore, you didn't have National Assembly parties that could nominate an opposition candidate to run against Talon. So by changing the electoral rules, you disqualified the possibility for any opposition candidate. And in a very subtle way, in a sense, because it's not saying opposition candidates can't run, it's just that they became disqualified, right? Or they weren't able to get the nomination process that was required. And so it was just a legalistic measure. And this dramatically changes what has been the key defining element of Benin's democracy, very targeted, using the legislature in place and the judiciary in place to use nominally democratic institutions to make changes to those institutions that then delegitimize the possibility for opposition to run. And this is a trend that we see more broadly in terms of the new mode of democratic backsliding. We see it around the world. We see it in the United States. We see it in Europe. We see it in Africa and Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. It's using the institutions of democracy and the branches, the judiciary, the legislature, the executive, the bureaucracy, to make and enforce laws that limit democratic struggle, content, competition. So Benin is a country that has had amazing democratic achievements. I want to emphasize that because right now they're seeing some real challenges to the basic foundations to its democracy. Looking forward, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about Benin's democratic prospects? I'm an optimist at heart, but I'm very worried. I'm very worried about the next set of elections because I think that they will be very telling about what is possible. Right now, opposition is effectively gone at every level of government. And so the question is, will Talon try to run again or implement you know, a kind of successor that will keep opposition at bay or whether it will be an opportunity for another renewal? And renewal is what Benin is known for. Renewal is what has been at the heart of the democratic story of Benin. 
since its national conference has this model. And so that's what allows me to be an optimist because of the strength of civil society mobilization. But in talking with members of the civil society, in particular around groups that have been funded to do this kind of democratic accountability work, you know, do kind of audits of different portions of the bureaucratic functioning, they are feeling very repressed. I mean, very, very surveyed, narrow in terms of the scope of what they can do. And the attack on media is really significant. Again, using the tools of the legislature and special courts, Benin has adopted a new law that can prosecute journalists who share false information via social media. So any critique of the president, for example, that one could say is false, or a journalist could share some information from a source to another journalist, right, via social media, via texting, WhatsApp, whatever, and they could be prosecuted for that if any element of that is shown to be not fully demonstrated to be true. So the chilling effect that this has for the free media in Benin is huge. A special court for drug trafficking and counterterrorism is also used to harass and round up opposition. There's a lot of headwind and there's a lot of concern. But we will see if Benin can mobilize and again, kind of reclaim its democratic, representative, and accountable governance. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. You really opened my eyes to all the different things that Benin can show us and really teach us about democracy, that it's not necessarily the typical democracy, and those are the best at being able to really challenge those preconceptions of what democracy is and how it has to be constructed. And if there's one thing that I would say for hope for Benin's democracy, it's that it was never elite-driven from what it sounds like. It was always citizen-driven. And so I think that the faith that we have needs to not be in the elites, in the political leaders, but once again, in the citizens. So thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And it's a real reminder to citizens everywhere to stand up for democracy in these moments of challenge and to use the power that we have. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars, 
at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.